Good morning. morning. Welcome to church this morning. If you've got uh, your bulletin with you, if you'd like to open it, and let's read the call to worship together. It's from Psalm 148, verses 12 and 13. Both young men and virgins, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord. For his name alone is exalted. His glory is above heaven and earth. If you'd like to pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your greatness. We thank you that you are so far above us and so much greater than we can understand. But yet you allow us to understand what you want us known about you. And we thank you for your word and how we can learn about you. We pray that you would help us to honor you and worship you correctly this morning. And we thank you that we can meet together and we got a nice warm place, that we are safe and that we are healthy and that we have a pastor to teach us your word this morning. And we just thank you once again for that. In Jesus' name we give thanks. Amen. Larry's now going to have our scripture reading. morning at Acts chapter 2, reading from verse 1 to 36. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly the sound of a blowing violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were seating. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because of each of them heard speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not these men who are speaking Galatians? How is it then that each of us hears them in their own, his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontius, and Asia, Peregrine, Pamphla, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors of Rome, of both Jew and converts of Judaism, Christians and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they had too much wine. Peter, then Peter stood up in the, with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the cloud. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only mine, nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men will see visions. Your older men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. 
the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put, the, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he was at my right hand. I will not be shaken, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with your joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here and to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an, on an oath that he would be placed, that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised Jesus, this Jesus, to life, and we are all witnesses of that of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see now and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, the Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. May God add his blessing to his word. And as we uh, look into this passage, let's uh, first of all, just bow our heads and ask God to speak his word to us and, and let's all just consciously open up our hearts to what God may be saying. So let's bow in prayer. Lord, as we look into this particular passage uh, before us here now, we we just ask that uh, you would open all of our hearts and we would all consciously open up our minds uh, to allow you to speak and be conscious of what you may be saying to us personally. Uh, I don't know where everybody's at this morning, Lord, but, but you do, so I pray that you would take the words from this passage of Scripture and help me to speak it as it should be spoken and then help us all to hear what you want us to hear this morning. And that you would feed us and encourage us so we can all say when the service is over that we have heard from you and we've met with you. 
clever waiting for what you have to say to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> I have in my uh, personal collection a whole pile of Western novels. The vast majority of them are Zane Gray and Louis L'Amour books. Uh, I got into Zane Gray when I was in my teens, mid-teens probably, and later teens, and more into Louis L'Amour after I was out of high school. <clears throat> Zane Gray is a writer from a generation before Louis L'Amour, and although their novels are for the most part set in the same time period, or that of the Old West, uh, their writing styles are quite different. At any rate, as I was thinking of how to introduce this sermon, uh, I was reminded of the plot line of one of Zane Gray's novels. Uh, it's not one of his best books, and it is more of a romantic love story than a Western novel, but, uh, but the plot line is that this young man from Iowa uh, finds out that his uncle, who had moved to Arizona many years ago to become a rancher, and he had become a very wealthy rancher, and in his later years he had left the ranch to his superintendent, and he had gone to retire someplace else. But anyway, this, this wealthy rancher uncle of his had died, and he had no heirs, so he left his ranch and all his belongings in Arizona to this young man from Iowa, his nephew. So his nephew, he heads out to Arizona to, to claim the ranch and to take over and become a rancher himself. But because he knows nothing about the West or about ranches or how to run one or how to boss cowboys or how to get along with them or anything about it, he was very green tenderfoot, he decides to masquerade as a tenderfoot cowboy, which is what he was, but to just a footloose kind of cowboy to get a job on his own ranch and learn ranching from the ground up with anybody knowing who he really was. And only after that he would reveal his true identity and take over the ranch. So that was his plan. So those of you who have read a lot of westerns, you can fill in those blanks from now on, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> of how this is going to play out. <laughs> superintendent of this ranch that his, un his uncle had hired was crooked. Uh, the superintendent also had a beautiful daughter who had no idea her dad was crooked. And so the story goes that he gets a job on his own ranch. Everyone picks on him because he's a tenderfoot. But he does manage to make friends with one of the cowboys and also with the foreman of the ranch who worked under the superintendent. And he learns ranching up, ranching from the ground up, and all the while he's gathering evidence of the superintendent's crooked activities. And of course, then the love story develops between him and the superintendent's daughter. So everyone knows him as this tenderfoot cowboy who has nothing in this world except this low-paying job on this ranch. And of course, as things come to a climax, he gets proof of the superintendent's guilt. And then he gets a lawyer, and together they confront the superintendent with his guilt, and he reveals his true identity as the owner of the ranch. And so now this tenderfoot cowboy has a totally new and different role in everyone's life than what he had before. He's no longer just a cowboy like the rest. He's now the boss. And for the girl, he's no longer just a penniless, free-drifting cowboy, tenderfoot cowboy. He's now the owner of the ranch with all the wealth that went with it. So for everyone involved, they have to get used to this young man's new role 
in their lives. So going forward, there's going to be a big transition going on at that ranch. <laughs> that moment when he revealed his true identity was the beginning of a totally new role for, the, for this young man. By the way, he got the girl, if, that, if any of you were wondering. <laughs> In a very, very, very small way, that is an illustration of what we're going to be talking about today. <laughs> we come to Acts 2 in our study through the book of Acts this morning. You'll remember from the last couple of Sundays, a couple of sermons, we looked at the chapter 1. Uh, the focus has been the coming of the Holy Spirit. Stay in Jerusalem, Jesus told his disciples before he sent it into heaven. Stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. When he comes, you will receive power. And then you'll be my witnesses through the whole world. But until he comes, stay in Jerusalem. The disciples were obedient to Jesus' command and they waited there in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come. Seemingly, they took up headquarters in that upper room there in Jerusalem, likely the same one that they had celebrated the Passover with Jesus just a few weeks prior to this. And they stayed there and they waited. The group of disciples waiting there was not just the 11 that Jesus had chosen at the beginning of his ministry over three years previous to that. There was a total, we saw last week, of about 120 people, all disciples of Jesus, gathering there. All people who had placed their faith in belief in Jesus, that he was the Messiah, and that he had died for their sins, and in him alone is eternal life. Uh, so in that sense, all disciples of Jesus, they're all waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And they were all committed to doing what Jesus asked them to do. So that brings us to chapter 2, which records this event of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it was quite a remarkable event, as we saw when, we, when Larry read it for us. I gave the sermon the title, The Beginning of the Holy Spirit's New Role. Let me explain that. The Holy Spirit is, of course, a member of the Godhead. He's one of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, being God, is eternal. No beginning, no end. He's eternal. He was already there when the universe was created. He took part in creating the universe. He has always been there. So as far as what is recorded in the Bible, in the Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit was there and he was active. Uh, but not like he is now. In Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit would come upon particular people at a particular period of time for a particular purpose and do his work through that person that God wanted done. And he would do his work and then he would leave when the work was done. So that very simply was the role of the Old Testament of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Now, if you want to go into detail, it's it's a little more complicated than that, and more in-depth than that. But, but for our purpose this morning, that kind of, what, kind of sums, it up, sums up the Holy Spirit's role in the Old Testament. But everything changed when Jesus, God the Son, came to earth as a human and died in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. And then rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. That opened a huge door that had never been opened before. 
the door of salvation that all are invited to enter in because the penalty for sin has been paid. It broke down the barrier between us and God. And it opened the door for the Holy Spirit to take on a new and a greatly expanded role in God dealing with humanity. So this event recorded for us here in Acts chapter 2 that tells us about the coming of the Holy Spirit is the beginning of the Holy Spirit taking on that new role. So let's get into it. We need to understand the Holy Spirit's new role that began with his coming on the day of Pentecost. And we can understand this by studying the teaching surrounding the coming of the Holy Spirit as told in Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 36 as Larry read for us. So, Fairly long, long passage. There's a lot of stuff here so we've got to kind of power through here this morning. First teaching, the coming of the Holy Spirit described. Coming of the Holy Spirit described. Let's first go through the description of what happened when the Holy Spirit came on this occasion. Luke tells it here in verses 1 through 13. You can follow along. It happened on the day of Pentecost. Verse 1 tells us, Pentecost. That was one of the Jewish feasts that God had commanded in the Old Testament that people observe. It was also known as the Feast of Weeks. It fell seven weeks after the Feast of the First Fruits. Now there was kind of a string of feasts, of festivals that God had commanded in the Old Testament that kind of came one right after the other. Uh, started with a Passover, and then was the unleavened bread, and then the first fruits, and then the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. So when you do the math, this Feast of Pentecost came 50 days following the first Sunday after the Passover. Now we know Jesus was crucified on the day before Passover, and that he rose from the dead that Sunday following the Passover. So, this Feast of Pentecost would have occurred 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. Now, if you look back to chapter 1, verse 3, you read that Jesus appeared to his disciples alive at various times following his resurrection for a period of 40 days. And then, his last appearance to them, he ascended to heaven while they were watched. And remember, on that occasion, he told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came. So, putting it all together, do the math. The disciples were waiting in Jerusalem for a period of 10 days before the Holy Spirit came. 10 days. During this time, as we saw last week, they devoted themselves to prayer and chose a replacement for Judas, which we looked at last week. Judas, the one who had betrayed Jesus and then went and hung himself. So, chapter 2, verse 1, the day of the Feast of Pentecost arrived, and the disciples are all together in one place, and we can only assume it's there, still there in the upper room. And suddenly it says, there came a noise, a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, it, it wasn't windy. <laughs> it wasn't windy. It was just a noise that sounded like a rushing wind. The noise came from heaven, verse 2 says. So this was a supernatural event. There was no natural cause to this noise. It was supernatural. And it is kind of an interesting play on words. In the Greek language, the word for wind and the word for spirit uh, come from the same root word. They sound very much the same. 
So the Holy Spirit came with the sound of a violent rushing wind. In the Greek, those two are very similar words. Also, in addition to this noise, like a violent rushing wind, there appeared something that looked like tongues of fire that distributed themselves and rested on the heads of each person that was there. Now again, we need to realize, it, it wasn't a flame of physical fire. It wasn't a physical fire talked about here. It was something that looked like tongues of fire, but it wasn't a physical tongue of fire. And again, it's a supernatural thing. Luke is describing these supernatural things, trying to do so in a way that we can at least get a picture in our minds of what it was like. So these things that looked like tongues of fire rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So here we have it. This was the coming of the Holy Spirit that they were waiting for. And he filled each one of these followers of Jesus that were there. And the immediate result was that each one of them began to speak with other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave utterance. Did you catch that? Tongues of fire? <laughs> Speaking with other tongues? Seems to be a connection there. Seems to mean that the Holy Spirit gave them supernatural ability to speak in another language. One of them this language, another of them that language. Different language that they themselves had, had never really learned. And at some point here, and Luke doesn't tell us when, but obviously at some point here, these disciples left the upper room and went out in public. And again, we aren't told, but it would make sense that they would have gone to the temple in Jerusalem. It was the Feast of the Pentecost. Remember, that's where the Jewish people would be gathering to celebrate this there at the temple. So it seems likely that they probably would have left the upper room and gone to the temple at some point in here. So they're now out in public. They're all speaking in other languages. And verse 5 and following gives us some, information, some interesting information. There were Jews there in Jerusalem at this time, devout men, who came from every nation under heaven. And most commentators feel that these Jews had likely come to Jerusalem from their homelands for this string of feasts that they were to celebrate over a period of, well, 50 days, I guess, or a little more. Now, the Jews had a presence all over the place, all over the known world at that time. They were called Jews of the dispersion or the diaspora, the Jews that had been dispersed around the world at previous times in the past. Remember over 700 years previous to this, Assyria had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and had carried many of those Jews away to captivity. And about 200 years later, the Babylonians had conquered the southern nation of, of Judah and carried away many of them into captivity. Now many of those Jews had returned to Israel when Cyrus made the decree that they could. But there were also many that didn't go back. They made their homes there where they were taken to and their descendants after them made their homes there. And then over the centuries Jews had been taken off to different lands more than once. Not very many of them at a time like those two main ones were but it had happened. So there are still there's talk of these, these Jews still God-fearing Jews but they're living in these other countries. And they're called the Jews of the dispersion or the diaspora in Greek. 
So all these Jews from all these other places were in Jerusalem here at this time. They, along with everyone else, uh, coming for the feast. And so now on this occasion, they're all there at the, at the temple and they're hearing these disciples speak in these other languages. Verses 7 through 11 tell us that. And what is interesting is that they heard the disciples speaking in the languages or dialects of where they came from. Now, these disciples are Galileans. They're untrained in other languages. Most everyone living in Jerusalem or in Palestine, Judea at that time, because of the political climate over the past few hundred years, most everybody could speak two languages. Uh, the common language that was spoken by the Jews at that time was Aramaic. But everybody also knew Greek, because that was the language of, uh, the official language. And the Greeks ruled the world, and Romans took over. They let everybody keep on talking Greek. But most people could speak those two languages, Aramaic and Greek. But these people from these other countries were hearing the disciples speak in the language of that country, or that dialect, native dialect of that country, where they came from. And they're listed there in verses 9 through 11. All those different countries. They're all hearing these native languages from these old other countries being spoken. So the languages or the tongues that the disciples were speaking here were real languages known to different people from different parts of the, of the world. And what they were saying in all these different languages was the same. They were all speaking of the mighty deeds of God, it says. And everyone that was hearing this and seeing this were totally amazed at what they were seeing and hearing. What is this? They were asking themselves. What does this mean? But, like always, there's always some cynics and skeptics around. So <laughs> There were those from Palestine itself. They didn't know all these other languages. They just knew Aramaic and Greek, but they were hearing this gibberish. So they viewed it all with skepticism and they started mocking, ah, they've been at the wine bottle a little too long. They're all drunk, that's all this is. So that brings us to 13. That's, that's what happened when the Holy Spirit came. The sound of the rushing wind, the tongues of fire, the speaking of tongues, and the great works of God being spoken of in a huge variety of languages. Some commentators make the, make the point that, that God is beginning a new work here, the kind of a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel when God separated people by giving them different languages. Now he's bringing them all back together as they are, these tongues are being spoken. So that's an interesting thing you might want to study in your spare time, how, how that all fits together. But that's what happened when the Holy Spirit came. Something to note before we go on. First, this is the beginning of the Holy Spirit's new role among us as humans. His new role is now to indwell every believer and do the work of Jesus Christ through all of us believers. It started here. This is when he came in this new way, in this new role, and this is what happened. So, we need to remember as we go on here that this is one of those one-time events that we see in the book of Acts. This is a book of transition. This is one of those one-time events. Now that the Holy Spirit has come, uh, he, he doesn't need to come again. <laughs> He's here, indwelling all of us as believers. So, so we shouldn't try to recreate this event, or more importantly, 
recreate the experience of this event, the experiences that came with this event. We shouldn't try to recreate that, because he can't. We just can't. He came, he's now here. So we should try, we, we should not try to get him to come again <laughs> like this. This is the first time he came in this new role, and so it was marked with these supernatural things happening to show that it was of God. But it is a one-time event. So that is what happened when the Holy Spirit came in his new role, and that of indwelling all believers. Moving on. Secondly, the prophecy foretelling the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's the second thing we want to look at. The prophecy foretelling the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is verses 14 through 21 as we move on. So in this context of everyone seeing and hearing this and being amazed and being bewildered and wondering what is going on and some mocking, saying they're drunk, Peter then stood up and addressed the crowd to explain to everybody what's going on. So you can follow along there as they go. First, Peter says, no one is drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. Some of your translations say nine in the morning. The Jews reckon their day starting at kind of around sunrise-ish, so six o'clock in the morning. Uh, so the third hour would be nine o'clock in the morning. So some of your translations does say nine o'clock. Some say the third hour. So at that time, um, wine was usually only served when when you ate meat. Uh, and meat, if it was eaten, was only served at the evening meal. So no one be, would be having anything to drink at 9 o'clock in the morning. So that's what Peter said. It's not drunkenness. What you're seeing, Peter says, and what you're hearing is what the prophet Joel talked about and foretold as to what would happen in the last days. And then Peter quotes from that Old Testament prophet Joel, from Joel chapter 2, 28 to 32. And Peter quotes that passage. An Old Testament prophet Joel, he wrote that book that is in the Old Testament that bears his name. He wrote it about 835 B.C., so that's 800 years, more than 800 years prior to this. And the prophet Joel prophesied, he did most of his book is about the coming judgment for the nation Israel's sins, but he also prophesied about the coming, after the, that judgment, about the coming of, of a great time of God coming upon the people specifically that God would give his spirit, God would pour out his spirit on all mankind people would have the Holy Spirit and they would prophesy, prophesy here meaning that in the general sense of speaking out the word of God um, both young and old both male and female, they would all have the spirit, they would dream dreams and see visions and would prophesy or speak of the mighty works of God and so this, Peter tells the crowd, is the fulfillment of that prophecy that Joel made over 800 years before this. The Holy Spirit has come to all believers. All are speaking about the great and mighty works of God. The young and the old, the male and the female, they're all talking about the great works of God. Now, there's also in Joel's prophecy predictions about signs and wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, smoke. Sun will be darkened, moon turned to blood, and so on. That's also in that prophecy, as you read there. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. As typical of Old Testament prophecies, as a prophet is given revelation of future events, 
they talk about a time and an era when these events will happen in that era. But they see it, as they're looking at it, they see it kind of all running together without mention of the length of that era or of the time span between the different events of that era. So Joel was talking about the end times as he saw it from his perspective, 835 B.C. He was looking ahead and he saw this as the happening in the end times. Over the last days, some of your translations say. This is the period of time we're in right now. It started with Jesus coming to this earth to live and die and rise again. And it will end with Jesus returning to this earth. From the Old Testament perspective, this period of time is the last days. From our perspective, Joel tells us, kind of as we dissect it, it he, what he tells us is what will happen at the beginning of the end times and what will happen at the end of the end times, if you like. It would begin with the pouring out of the Spirit of God, as Peter is telling them here, and the, they're in the process of witnessing this happening. It will end with these other events of the sun being darkened and the moon turning to blood and the great and glorious day of the Lord. We know from other end time prophecies in the Bible that that will happen at the end when Jesus does physically return to this earth. Those are events that are still future from our standpoint. Joel, from way back then, looking ahead, he kind of saw it all together. So, the coming of the Holy Spirit, as they were witnessing it here, was something that Joel had foreseen and promised over 800 years prior to this event. It was always God's plan that it would happen like this. Always. Things were unfolding exactly according to God's plan. Which he had from the foundation of the earth. And has, this plan has been unfolding throughout the years. So Peter's point to the Jews here, who are amazed and a bit bewildered by what they're seeing happening, some being kind of cynical and mocking and attributing it to drunkenness, what Peter's point is to them is that what they're seeing and hearing is consistent with all that they have been taught all their lives from the scriptures. It's consistent with that. What you're seeing, you've been taught about all your years if you're good, devout Jews and been taught in the scriptures. This is a work of God. It was prophesied and this is the prophesied pouring out of the Spirit of God. What the prophet Joel had seen as the last days, we're now there. It's beginning. It's pouring out of the Holy Spirit was an indication of that. So that's a prophecy about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly and finally, the teaching explaining the coming of the Holy Spirit. So this is the rest of this section, verses 22 to 36. And again, you can follow along. The teaching explaining the coming of the Holy Spirit. After Peter explained about the prophecy of Joel, he went on to preach a very powerful sermon to them. Further explaining how it all fits together. And you will notice as you look at verses 22 to 36, it's all about Jesus. In summary, this is what Peter said. Jesus the Nazarene came to us with miracles and signs and wonders from God. You all saw it. We all saw it. He was delivered up to be crucified by you. He's talking about the Jewish people collectively. But it was all according to the predestined and predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You put him to death, Peter says. But God raised him from the dead because it was impossible for him to be held in death's power. 
Peter then quotes from Psalm 16, verses 18 and 11, you can, to 11. You can see that as you follow along in your Bibles. He quotes from Psalm 16, 8, eight verse, to, verse 8 to 11, <laughs> the key point of which is that God would not abandon his soul to the Hades or allow his Holy One to undergo decay. Peter explains that in this psalm, David is talking about the coming Messiah. He couldn't have been talking about himself. Now, if you go back and read Psalm 16, it does sound like David's talking about himself and the situation he's facing, and he's realizing that God will not allow him to die, <laughs> even though the enemies are out to get him. Uh, but Peter explains here, no, when you look at the whole picture, David couldn't be talking just about himself. It's more far-reaching than that. Because, Peter says, David died and was buried, and his grave is still there. You can go see it just outside of Bethlehem. We can, I think it's still there, actually. Anyone can go see it. David died and was buried. So he couldn't have been talking about himself. No, David was speaking prophetically, Peter says. He was talking about the resurrection of the Messiah. Messiah wasn't abandoned to the grave, and his body did not undergo decay. Jesus died, was buried, but rose from the dead three days later. And Peter says, they all witnessed it. All the disciples, they all witnessed it. So Peter says, obviously, Jesus is the Messiah being talked about in this psalm. And the Messiah prophesied throughout the Old Testament. Obviously, it's Jesus, because Jesus rose from the dead, fulfilling that prophecy. And not only that, Peter says, but another psalm, Psalm 101. Sorry, 110, verse 1. Talks about the Lord saying to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. And Peter says this, obviously is also talking prophetically about the Messiah. David didn't descend into heaven. But David wrote that in Psalm 110. So obviously he wasn't talking about himself, but about the Messiah. So then back to verse 33. Jesus was exalted, he ascended to heaven to be seated at God's right hand, and he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he has now poured forth the Holy Spirit, which is what you are hearing and seeing right now in front of you. The conclusion of all this, verse 36, let's read it, very important verse, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Hmm. The word Lord, as used there, is significant. You know, the word Lord, it can be, it can be just a courtesy title, as in, in old England, you had lords and ladies kind of thing. could be just a courtesy title or a title for some upper class person but here it's more than that it is synonymous with the Hebrew word for Yahweh that word which is I am that I am <laughs> the meaning of that used first in Exodus 3 when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush I am that I am. That word became so consecrated over the years with the Jews that the Jews even feared to say it out loud. 
So they would substitute the word Lord for that. So they wouldn't say the actual Yahweh word. That's why when you read in the Old Testament, by the way, you'll often, most of your translations or the newer translations will have, you'll often see Lord in capital letters all the way through. That's what that is. The real word in the original Hebrew was Yahweh, but they substituted the word Lord for it. And they put it in all capital letters so you would know that that's what it is. It means the name above all names, that word Lord, used in this context. So when Peter here concludes in verse 36 that God made Jesus both Lord and Christ, he is really saying something incredibly profound. He is Lord. That's equating him with God. And he is Christ. That is the Greek word for Messiah. So that's quite a statement by Peter. But Peter says, considering what the scriptures say, and he just went through it, and considering what we've just seen happen before our very eyes when we were with Jesus, and now what we're seeing now as the Holy Spirit came upon us, that is the only conclusion you can come to. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Another just kind of, by the way, information knowledge. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. Those are two synonymous. They both mean the same thing. Savior, that's the English word. So you see those words used interchangeably sometimes, and that's the difference. But Jesus is both Lord and Christ. So that brings Peter's sermon to an end, and that is where we're going to end today. What is important to note here is that Peter's sermon, obviously given by the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it was an incredibly powerful sermon, as we're going to see next week as we go on. But the sermon was all about Jesus. Jesus is the Savior. He's our Savior and our God. He is God. It's all about Jesus. God's work for us as humans is all about Jesus. His death, his resurrection, his ascension. <coughs> and the salvation he offers now to the entire world. It's all about Jesus. And when the Holy Spirit here is filling and controlling and empowering people, this is what you always see. It's all about Jesus. That's something we need to keep in mind as we go through this. And now that the Holy Spirit has begun his new role in dwelling all believers and filling and empowering all believers, moving forward from this, we see that the, as the Holy Spirit does his work, he always points people to Jesus. That's what he does. He always makes it about Jesus. When you're considering the Holy Spirit and his new role, that's, that's what you always see. The Holy Spirit always points people to Jesus. So therefore, we see from this passage the teachings that help us understand the Holy Spirit's new role that began on this day of Pentecost. They are, number one, the Holy Spirit described. We saw it there, the rushing wind, the tongues of fire, speaking in other languages. Number two, the prophecy foretelling the coming of the Holy Spirit. Old Testament prophet Joel talking about the end times, the Holy Spirit being poured out on all people. And then thirdly, the teaching explaining the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now it's all about Jesus and who he is. Lord and Christ. So what's our takeaway from this for us this morning? 
kind of kind of struggled with this a bit this uh, as I was preparing this. What what's our takeaway? What what's the application for us in our own hearts and lives? And again, I don't know where you all are at. I don't know, but this is God's word, and this is important to understand. I think I think the first takeaway for me: this is a one-time event that heralded the Holy Spirit's coming in a brand new role, much expanded from his previous role. So it's kind of a one-time event. This is what happened when he came, and now that he's here. He indwells all believers when they accept Jesus as Savior. He comes in and dwells them and fills them. Second, this is now for all believers. This is for all believers. It's not just Holy Spirit coming on a particular person then or then or for a particular time or purpose and then leaving. This is now for all believers. And it's not just for the priests. It's not just for the prophets. It's not just for... No, it's for all believers, young and old, male and female. That's what the prophet Joel prophesied. He pour a spirit on all people. All are filled with the Holy Spirit. All believers. And they all can speak of the mighty works of God. They all can bear witness to Jesus, to their world around them. It's for everyone. All believers. So that means me, and that means you. Every one of us. We're believers who have accepted Christ as your Savior. Holy Spirit's in you. It's come upon you. You can speak the mighty works of God to those who need to hear it. Share the gospel with those who need to hear it. We can all do that. Holy Spirit has empowered us all to do that. And that's what God intends us to do. Be His witnesses. Tell others the mighty works of God. Jesus, death and resurrection what he's done for you and in you and what he can do for them if they believe in him. That's what God intends. And he's given us the Holy Spirit to help us and to empower us to do that. So let's take our time in silence. And again, I, as I said, I don't know what this pastor has for each one of you personally, but just take your time in silence. Open, open your heart to God and just listen. God, what are you saying to me this. What, what's your word for me this morning through this? And I'll give you a few moments to just listen. So if you heard God tell you to do something or say something to you or encourage you with something, there's a little thing on your page of notes to put in the bulletin, an application I need to, and I kind of leave it blank. So you can write in there if God said something to you. Write there what that is and what that means for you going forward. Music team, please.
Let's stand and sing together. singing.